Uh, why don't we start by praying? Let's do that. You and you alone are God. Um, and as we approach you uh, through the merit of Jesus and only through the merit of Jesus, we just pray that you bless our time. Uh, we sing praises to you that we want you to receive. You're worthy of them. Um, but we, we walk into this room uh, with disparate experiences. Some people elated, some people burdened, um, people disaffected, people, you know, spiritually on fire. And you and you alone, God, know what each of us needs. And so we pray that in your, in your nearness and in your goodness and in your power, because you're here and you answer prayer, um, that you would be at work within each one of us. And as we open your word and we share it together, help us, your people, to be edified by it. Help the, uh, the people who enter and, and uh, just have questions about you, that they'd be answered and that they would see the merits of Jesus and believe in him. So be glorified in it, and we ask that you edify your people in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let me have you turn to the Gospel of John, and we've gotten through the prologue, and so we're starting the, kind of the historical aspect of it in earnest. And maybe uh, to set it up this way, I was thinking about this because there's a Q&A sequence going on with uh, some of the ruling leaders in their day, and John the Baptist, who is the forerunner, the introducer to Jesus. And I remember as a kid, you know, watching, you know, back, I'm old enough that whenever I grew up, there was only where I lived, there was channels, there were channels 2, 6, 8, and PBS, which did not count, all right? And so, and most of the time, the programming was stuff that you know, there's Saturday morning cartoons, which is, they were really good, and, you know, the after-school stuff like the Little Rascals or whatever replayed, which were really good, and the rest of the time, they were wasting airtime on TV. You know, all this stuff that adults would watch, but as a kid, you just didn't know why they even bothered, right? And I remember watching at one point the interview format. You know, on TV, there was somebody like Barbara Walters or somebody like her asking questions to somebody and them answering. And I remember as a kid walking into the room and looking at this, observing this, and adults were engaged. It's like, why would you voluntarily be stuck in an adult conversation by turning it on TV? You could just leave and not be rude at all. You know, I was thinking as a kid, there's nothing worse than, you know, watching your mom or your dad talking to some other adults, and you're just standing there in the store or outside in the parking lot or whatever, and they're talking and talking and talking, and you can't escape, but if it's on the TV, you can just turn it off and leave, right? And, you know, if you're ever like, hey, mom, you know, she turns and she's like, Shh, just a minute. It's a lie. It's not just a minute. It's forever, right? <laughs> and then if you interrupt her again, hey, mom, then you get the look, like the you're not going to live much longer look, right? <laughs> well, the funny thing is, you know, you see that as a or I did as a kid. I observed that. And you think there's nothing more boring than that. But now, you know, as a gray hair, uh, gray beard, listen to the right podcast. And if there's somebody who's good at interviewing and they're uh, engaging the right person, you know that this question-answer sequence 
probes into their psychology or it taps into their expertise, and it can be just fascinating. You know, it's a lesson, kids. As you get old, you get boring. <laughs> you find, you know, other things uh, interesting. But in this passage, there's some of this. There's this Q&A sequence with John the Baptist from, you know, these, these ruling uh, elites, you might call it that. But it's not just that. As we read along, ask yourself, is this interview or interrogation? Interview or interrogation. So let's look at John 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 28. This is God's word. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to them, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if, neither, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is God's word. So let's look at the text and then let's look at what we can draw from it. That's simple. As God's people, let's um, open God's word, let's share it together, let's receive it as God's people. So let's understand it and apply it. Okay? So let's start with the understanding. What do we see in the flow of the text? You get the sequence of Q&A for sure, just in the logistics. But I'm going to break it down just broadly. Question one, question two, with an answer to each. So let's start with that. Verse 19, the big question is, who are you? This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now it's clear, whatever else, you know, you look at the last verse, you get the context that John has this baptizing ministry. And it's drawn enough attention that uh, there's this wide influence, it's obvious, uh, people notice, people are coming from all over, and it draws some official attention. The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him about it. Now, they have a duty to do this, this is within their jurisdiction. They would be uh, derelict of duty if they didn't follow up and see what was going on here. Right? So just like if, if you want to frame a reference for that, say if in a church of our size, you know, all things being equal, we're doing you know, everything the way we normally do, and then somebody pops up in the back corner and they're teaching a, you know, a Bible study and we don't know who they are and they've got a gathering there and we don't know, well, within the jurisdiction of the church, we're going to check it out, right? Just basically under our authority. Well, the Jewish leaders are doing that, so they send a delegation, an official delegation, to ask him this question because there's so much buzz around John's ministry. And again, we see this word, testimony. They ask him the question, this official delegation, and it says this is his testimony. It's a technical term. It's a legal term. It's not casual. This is sober and factual. We need an assessment of who you are, what's your statement. And, he, and the question is, who are you? Now, again, 
generations of people have been anticipating the Christ. And here John is with his baptizing ministry. He's drawing lots of attention, and it raises the question, what's going on with this guy? Could he be the one? We're just wondering, John, who are you? And then his answer to this first question is in verses 20 and 23. Let's look at that again. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to them, who, or said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So you get this idea. By implication, there's this huge influence that folks thought that maybe there was a chance. They're implying by their question um, you know, or at least you can look at by his answer where he says, I'm not the Christ. He, he knows what they're asking, right? Look at the emphasis at the beginning of verse 20. He confessed, did not deny, confessed. There's probably in John's day this uh, momentum because of the influence of his ministry to, to poise him as, you know, the likely one, right, because of who he is. And so that's the focus. And he denies it. He confesses, you know, um, uh, did not deny, confessed, I am not the Christ. That's his answer. And so this uh, official delegation follows up with uh, another question. Well, verse 21, well, what about Elijah? Are you Elijah? Now, from our modern context, that seems like a weird question because Elijah lived and died a long time ago, or he lived and departed a long time ago, right? He's taken up by the Lord. And so, but in their context, it's very reasonable to ask because Malachi had prophesied that, hey, when the end comes, there's going to be an end time, the day of the Lord, and Elijah is going to come then. It says this, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they're asking the question, here's this end times eschatological figure, the return of Elijah, and maybe John is that guy. Well, hey, John, are you that guy? No, not that guy. Okay, so you say you're not the Christ, you're not Elijah. And then in verse 21, what about the prophet? It's also a reasonable question to ask. Um, there was the promise of a prophet like Moses who would come up after him. And Moses said, Deuteronomy 18:15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Now, there's near and far fulfillment in that. In other words, there, there was a long-going tradition that they knew that in some sense, this was Joshua following Moses, but in another sense, there was a greater Joshua. And they were anticipating. John, are you that guy? Are you the, uh, are you the prophet come after Moses? And again, he says no. So what they do by the time you get to verse 22 is they open up the question. Now, you know, in the, in, if you go into a trial, it's a different kind of practice in law in a lot of ways. If you go into a trial, you've got the attorney asking the witness on the stand questions. And there are different kinds. If you're a trial attorney, you know the difference between closed questions and open questions. Like a closed question is yes or no. Are you the Christ? Yes or no? You see that sometimes with attorneys, you know. Uh, you know, the, uh, a question that's so closed, did, you know, did you, did you take this money, yes or no? Did you, were you in this spot, yes or no, right? That kind of thing, closed, yes or no, that's it. But there are, uh, there's another kind of question that says elaborate. And that's exactly what they do in 
verse 22, and they, they give the reason is that they basically say, we asked these closed-ended questions because we needed the specific answer. Are you the Christ? No. Okay, well, are you like Elijah? No. Are you that prophet? No. Well, we can't just go back and give our report. No, he says he's not the one, right? You know, like, what's your official report? Nope, dead end. So they've got to give a broader report. So they ask him this, they open it up. Well, what do you say about yourself? There's all this buzz. Obviously, people are coming to get baptized. They're following his ministry. A lot of speculation. But what about you? Here's what everybody else is saying. Here's all the speculation. But what do you have to say about yourself? And John gives uh, gives them his answer in verse 23. It was negative before. I'm not him or him or him. But it's positive now. Isaiah talked about a person coming 700 years ago. I am the voice of one calling out. So who am I? I'm the one Isaiah talked about. I'm that voice. Now, in their immediate context, um, the, the covenant people uh, were returning from exile, and the voice calls out. Um, and says, so, so, you know, basically coming home, coming uh, to uh, reestablish the kingdom in some kind of glory. So straighten the highway in the desert, lift up, you know, the valleys are low, make it easy for them to come, easy for them to return, to come home. So the valleys, lift them up. The hills, lower them. The, the, the uneven ground, level it out. Make the rough places smooth. And in Isaiah, that's fulfilled ultimately, not in that short term, but ultimately by this suffering servant. And what John says is like, yeah, you you might know, and they would have known in their context, that the immediate fulfillment is to make the way for the covenant people to come home from exile. But this greater fulfillment of it in John is that the Christ is coming. And where Isaiah had prophesied, uh, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Who are you, John? I'm that voice. I'm the one God designated to declare the coming of the Lord, and I'm going to, I'm an announcer. I'm an introducer. And so what my, my whole role is to prepare people for the Lord who will usher in the new heaven and the new earth and bring his people into it. So you think, well, maybe that's the end of the story. No, there's a second question, broadly speaking, that they follow up. Because remember, verse 28 or 29, his ministry is baptizing. Now, you can't just walk around willy-nilly baptizing. One, that's kind of weird. But two, under a religious authority type of thing, they were really asking this question, who, what authority do you have to baptize? So that's, in, in essence, that's their big question. If you look at verses 24 and 25, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, <clears throat> this official delegation. And they're just letting you know from the Sanhedrin, probably in Jerusalem, all the political parties, all these subgroups who may not normally get along are in tandem working together to inquire into the ministry of John the Baptist. They're all concerned. They're all curious, but they're all concerned. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? That's the implication. These aren't just regular people asking. This is an official delegation. These are people with authority. And the real question is, Based on what authority are you baptizing? What authority do you have to do that? 
Um, and again, we, should, we shouldn't overstate it, but you can compare that here. If somebody just said, hey, you guys are a Baptist church, I know you have a baptistry in the back, and I'm going to use it. You know, I'm going to use it at 1017 on Sunday morning. And we don't know them or whatever. We're going, hold on just a second. You know, trespassing or that you're transgressing a authority under the jurisdiction of this church. Right? So it shouldn't just be anyone. You just don't say whatever. And, and somebody um, couldn't just stand up and preach whenever or teach a class whenever or, you know, decide that they're going to decorate and put a palm tree in the middle of the auditorium. Right? Whatever. Uh, there's, you, you know, you, you have a certain amount of jurisdiction that you're looking into. And what they're asking him is, okay, assuming you could establish this, if you're the Christ, well, obviously you'd have the authority to baptize. If you're Elijah, I mean, we don't know that that's in the purview of his ministry, but we're not going to talk back to Elijah. Or the prophet, uh, like Moses, is the same. You know, we're going to assume that if you're somebody like that, assuming that you could establish it through your CV, You've got the bona fides to establish that you're one of the big dogs like that. You could do it. But if you're not, it just, I don't know, it sort of looks like you're willy-nilly baptizing people and you didn't even ask. So based on what authority do you do that? Now, broadly speaking, this might be a way or this is likely a way that God is critiquing the people. He's letting them know that he's going to do something apart from them. So what is his answer? And I thought this was the most curious thing in my preparation. Who are you? I'm not the Christ. I'm not, I'm not one of the prophets. I'm not the Christ. I'm the voice pointing to the Christ, right? And then, okay, well, why are you baptizing? And if you read his response in, in verses 26 and 27, this is his answer. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, I read that about 10 times, um, and I asked myself the question, did he answer their question? Um, and then it took me a little while to finish the sermon because I answered that question differently about four times on each side. No, he didn't answer their question, or yes, he did answer their question. And I think he did. And here's how. So, again, back to law. Sometimes, a, you know, a, an attorney in trial will be kind of a bully, you know, and ask those close-ended questions. Uh, when did you stop beating your wife uh, type of thing, right? And the witness is, is uh, you know, if the witness is innocent, that witness is right to say, hold on, that is not a yes or no question. It's not yes or no there's a context here. There's something I need to say that'll give you the full story. And what John the Baptist is doing here is you're asking, on what basis I have to baptize? And I'm going to give you something broader so that you can think about this. Because in their context, baptism looks like a really big deal. And notice what he says, I baptize with water, but. I baptize with water, but something more is there in view. And so what he, what he does is he says, let's talk about me, and then let's talk about the one who comes after me. I baptize with water, he says, and water baptism, whatever else it is, it is symbolic. You know, it's a symbol of repentance or purification or renewal, but it's only water. It's a symbol that points to a reality. It is a symbol that points to something uh, 
something outwardly, uh, expressed outwardly, pointing to something spiritual and significant and, re- and enduring. And so whenever he says, I baptize with water, but he's really referring to this is a symbol. It's only water, people. Verse 33, next week, he points out that Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. You get baptized with water, you get wet. You get baptized with the Spirit, you get transformed. One is coming after me. And so, anyway, it's the symbolic act, the symbolic thing pointing to the reality. That's what he's talking about. So that's me, he says. I'm just doing this symbolic act. Why am I doing it? To point to the one. So let's talk about the one who comes after me. I baptize with water, but he, I'm going to point out four things briefly. Number one, he is among you. He's not far off. He's present. The time is now. He's right there in your midst. Now, interestingly enough, if there was a promised important figure and he was right in our midst, wouldn't you just start to kind of look around? Hmm. He says, you do not know him. That's the second thing. Now, he's been promised all along in this this official delegation. They should be experts in this. And what he's saying is, here's the crowd. He is in your midst, and you don't recognize him. Your expertise can't help you. you, you whatever else God is doing, it's, you know, it's beyond what you have the vision to be able to see. And number three, he comes after me. Now, if you're looking for the Christ, how do you know you found him, according to John? Well, he's going to follow right on the heels of, of my ministry. Interestingly enough, in their culture, we, we've read the Bible a lot, many of us, and you, we just tend to take that for granted. Well, there's a forerunner. We see it in our culture, too. Somebody who announces or introduces, you know, the real act. So you go to a concert, and there's kind of the warm-up act. They're really good, but lesser known or whatever, and then the big act comes later. We're used to that. But in their context, you know, the greater would go first. So, you know, think about, like, Moses and Joshua or Elijah and Elisha. You you tend to think there's a lesser iteration of somebody following. And he says, no, it's actually the opposite here. And then finally, he says he's not worthy. He's not worthy to untie his sandals. That was slave work. And what John is saying is, I'm not, not only am I not the greater one, I'm not worthy to take on the role of a slave and do those menial tasks for him. So what's my authority to baptize? Well, I've been called to prepare the way for him, and uh, I'm doing that through my ministry. My baptism ministry, my preaching ministry, all points to, to him. So there's the Q&A, and we'll follow up next week on that. So where do we, what do we draw from this to this point? So there's the question, who are you? I'm not the Christ. I'm the voice pointing to the Christ. Uh, why then are you baptizing? What authority do you have? Well, I'm, I have the authority of being called by God to point to the one. And that's what I'm doing through that. So what do we learn from that? Let me give you three things. They overlap. They're all important. And they help to prepare us for the rest of John. Number one, the real work of God is often not intuitive to people. I'm going to say that again. It's kind of funny when you think about it. I say the real work of God is often not intuitive to people. And so I repeat the point to uh, kind of drive it down a little bit more. As a matter of fact, it's usually the opposite. It's just not what we would assume. There are certain things in your life that you would assume that if God were everything you thought he'd be, that he'd do things your way. 
And more often than not, you're wrong, or you're off, or you're not going to see it. By the way, this has been going on for centuries. God says in Isaiah 55, my ways are higher than your ways. People have been doing this all the time. It's, it's, there's an irony that goes through, runs throughout each one of the Gospels in the New Testament that uh, the Son of God is in their midst and people are blind to it. So in the Gospel of Mark, it's interesting to see how often the people around Jesus don't see. Just can't see what's going on right in front of them. But there are lots of examples of God's kingdom being counterintuitive or upside down or not intuitive, however you want to say it. Here, it's the identity of Christ. Think about this. John is, it's going to be a big deal. It's going to draw attention. Not only uh, is the crowd around John uh, most likely at this time, he's baptizing, all that stuff, but you've got this official delegation, so people are going to listen in. This is something of a power encounter. And here, the identity of Christ is one of those things that's just not intuitive. The greatest person in the Bible, the most anticipated figure in history is in the crowd, and nobody knows who it is. I mean, you would have figured, like, maybe there'd be some kind of rise to prominence, some kind of, you know, something to get the juices flowing, a little something to get people excited. Uh, and John the Baptist is the warm-up act. Uh, Jesus in his teaching, uh, who's the first shall be last, upside down. The least is the greatest. Uh, I'm going to accomplish ultimate victory by being defeated. You're going to have life through my death. It's all upside down. It's all counterintuitive. It's not what you would have picked. As a matter of fact, it looks shallow and like you can't connect the dots. The, the problem with that is God's ways are higher than your ways and my ways and God doesn't just think differently than you and I do. He thinks better than you and I do. He actually addresses things that we wouldn't conceive of. So there are two things at work here. One is that God is at work, and two is that people are thick. We, you almost can't, uh, you know, overestimate how, how dumb sometimes you can be about spiritual things. You know, you see this sometimes with... Uh, men, I think men sometimes get a bad rap because I don't think women are all that bright either. But I think that as, the, as a man is dating uh, a woman and he's, you know, he's trying to charm her and all of that stuff, that there are times that as he, you know, they're, they're courting and that sort of thing, that there are certain things that are obvious and he just doesn't see, right? Doesn't see. He hurts her feelings and he, did, he had no idea, you know? So when he asks her what's wrong, Everybody knows what's wrong except him, right? He's just dull. He's just, he's not worthy of her affection, you might say. Well, we're kind of like that with God when it comes to spiritual things. We, we do the math and we tend to be dull and sinful. But the point is, is if you're going to get it, you're going to need some help. You're going to need someone to come along and help. You're going to need grace. If you're going to get it, God has to do a work in you to Turn the light on so that you can see what you couldn't see before. We, we tend not to get it. The, the real danger, the, the thing that I want you to do is recognize in yourself that you probably just don't intuitively have what it takes to piece God together in your mind. You just don't. And I don't either. He has to make himself known, and we have to see that. Okay, second thing. 
Uh, Jesus is uniquely the one. Now, for you strict grammarians out there, you're like, that's redundant. Yeah, uniquely the one, right? He's, I'm emphasizing the point. See point number one, people tend to be dull, right? Um, but this is the testimony of Scripture here is that John the Baptist, you know, relative to us, is great. But compared to Jesus, he says he's totally not worthy. We might put it this way. Jesus stands alone. Jesus is not the goat. He's not the greatest of all time. He's the only one. You know, we'll talk about that more next week, but let me draw it out this way. You can think in these terms that Jesus fulfills as prophet, priest, king. And we, I'm going to point to a Roman Catholic error, but I think we all make this error in some ways. Think about King David. Okay, right? You could extol him as the greatest. Um, Solomon follows him, and then another king, and another king. And you might argue about who is better, but they are all qualitatively fulfilling the same function, stepping into the same role. Some are better, some are less. Prophets, one versus another. I don't know that people do this, but maybe you're in Camp Isaiah and somebody else is, you know, pulling for Obadiah. You know, like, I've, I think Obadiah is underrated, you might say, or whatever. But one prophet has a broader influence and maybe a, a more significant time in Israel's history, and one has lesser but whether you're in Camp Isaiah or in Camp Obadiah, they both qualitatively fulfill the same function. Okay, now stay with me. Same with a priest. Maybe there's one priest who's like, whatever, he's ex opere operato. He's just going through the motions, thinking that you'll get the benefits of it just by doing his priestly duties in the Old Testament, right? But he's not particularly attentive or dutiful, and his affections are low. But you might have another priest who has a lot of influence and, and he engages and he is attentive and dutiful and all that. But, but you compare them, one is better than the other, but they are qualitatively, functionally filling the same role. Jesus is not like that. In other words, that somebody can come along and maybe they're not as great as David, but they can do David-like things. Somebody could come along and maybe as a prophet, they're not like Isaiah, but, you know, they can do Isaiah-like things. They're still speaking for God or they're still representing God. John the Baptist cannot pinch hit for Jesus. You know, it's not like God went, well, you know, Jesus is our best shooter, so let's put him, like, right? We're going to put him out on the perimeter. We'll set a few screens and, you know, kick the ball out to him and make sure he gets the final shot. Peter cannot pinch hit for Jesus. Do you see how I mix the metaphors? I just realized that. Baseball and basketball. Stay on your toes, folks. What if all the prophets, priests, and kings combined all their merit versus on one side versus Jesus on the other? You didn't just have David. You had, all, you had David and all the David-like people. You didn't just have Isaiah or Moses. You had all the Moseses and the Moses-like you know, uh, prophets. And the same with the priests and on, on and on. What if you had all of them on their side and you just had Jesus on the other? Could, them, could those guys with all their effort do what Jesus did? No. You could multiply everything that they could do, you know, infinitely multiply it. And they would not be able to do what Jesus does. And that's the point, is that Jesus is uniquely the one. There was one promise to come and rule and save uh, and redeem, and he does that. But it's only Jesus. 
We all simply point to him because Jesus and Jesus alone saves, because Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy. John the Baptist is a better dude than you. He's a better dude than me. And when it comes to Jesus, he says, I'm not worthy. What he is going to do, nobody else is worthy to step into that role. What he does, nobody else can fill in and qualitatively fulfill the same function. You get it? There's Jesus and there's only Jesus. And that's the testimony of John. You want to know how this is working? There's one. And then finally, Jesus is accessible. So not only is Jesus able to save and uniquely the one to save, you can get to him. You see this uh, when John talks about Jesus being among them? This passage marks a transition in the history of the world. Before this passage, everybody's looking, they're anticipating, and just really a general thing, you know, well, the Christ is going to come someday, we believe that. Maybe it's going to be soon, maybe it's going to be in my lifetime, people will speculate, maybe is, is it this guy or that guy, but it's not general anymore. Um, you know, before, you could just say it could be anyone, it could be any time. And once this happens, it's as specific as a person, Jesus. This is a person you can believe in. John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Once this happens and Jesus comes and he fulfills his ministry, this isn't a general concept to think about anymore. This is a person uh, to receive as Jesus. There's a commentator, a guy named Mark Johnstone, who said this. I want to close this way. He says, when it comes to deliverance, and by the way, every generation thinks about deliverance, this generation does, the ones before us, the ones in other places. When it comes to deliverance, the hopes of every generation are set too low. In other words, we see needs, we see problems, and we want relief from those problems. But the salvation we seek, we just set our aims way too low. It's we underestimate how deep the problem is. So you might be going... Oh, our, our society is a wreck and our culture is a problem. And you might look at that and say, we need deliverance on a sociocultural level. You'd be right. I'm not saying you wouldn't be right that there aren't problems. But something could happen tomorrow that makes uh, what's going on in our society irrelevant. Just one thing could happen tomorrow and it could change everything. It could totally change the way you frame this issue. It's never going to do that with theology. Uh, politics. Some people think, well, politically our fortunes are bad right now and we need uh, political deliverance. I'm not saying politically things are wonderful or that, that they have been recently or the president before, the president before, and so on. I'm just saying if, it, if you think that having, having things arranged politically the way you want them down to the detail, if you think that's deliverance, um, you want too little. Economic deliverance, psychological deliverance, in essence, our need is spiritual. It goes beyond any of those things. So Johnstone goes on to say, we need a salvation that can deal with sin and all of its ramifications. All those other things, you know, they, they're the manifestation of the problem of sin. But what he's talking about there <clears throat> is that if you would really be delivered, you need something that will address the problem in you and beyond you. And that's Jesus, the one, the one who 
uh, has come. And so the message is don't settle. Turn to him, receive him, because to everyone who believes in him, he gives the right to become children of God. Be one of those. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the faithful witness of John the Baptist pointing to the one. May we believe in him um, and give you glory and, uh, and delight in being your children. We pray that for everybody here. In Jesus' name, amen.